0: and undoubtedly the can do attitude that we have now will through inquiries and so on turn into a why did you not do attitude and that will that will come uh, it's just a question of when really
1: welcome to this bmj covid podcast I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday 19th January 2021. As lockdown continues in the UK and we pass the grim milestone globally of two million deaths worldwide from COVID. Over 37,000 people with COVID are in hospital in the UK and the NHS is closer than ever to being overwhelmed. A cheerier milestone, over four million people in the UK have now been vaccinated with their first dose. But we are being warned that things will still get worse before they get better. With me today on the podcast, I have Helen Salisbury.
2: Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. Partha Carl.
3: Hiya, consultant in diabetes in Portsmouth. Nizrin Alwan.
4: Hi,
1: Public Health in Southampton. And
0: Matt Morgan. I am an intensive care consultant in Cardiff.
1: Thank you very much, all of you. Good to see you all um, and spe- especially grateful to you when things are so busy. I just thought we could begin with with the pressures on the health service as a result of the huge number of cases around the country uh, and, and the strain this is putting on the service and on staff. Um, Matt, one thing has come up about fears amongst doctors that they may be faced with unimaginable decisions about Having to treat one patient as opposed to another when both might benefit from intervention uh, and, and really request that the government might legislate to to provide protection from such uh, being sued for unlawful killing w- What is your sense about the need for this um, and and the current strain on on the system?
0: Yeah, well, one important thing to say is that this reaching capacity and change in decision making about who's cared for and who's not on capacity, as far as I'm aware, has not happened in ICUs in the UK as of now. That's not to say that problem won't be approached. The strategy used for that is that until every ICU in every city and every town in the country is full and every piece of equipment used, then those patients should able to have critical care in those other areas. Now, I personally don't think that if that situation comes to be, it shouldn't be up to an individual clinician at three o'clock in the morning to make those decisions which they should never make. And decisions like this should be made when the seas are calm, not when the seas are rough. That's not the time to make those thoughts and those decisions. So, you know, I welcome the statement from the Nuffield Bioethics uh, Association in the last week or so about this. And you're right, you know, a pandemic... (laughs) in critical care or anywhere else is worrying enough without thinking about what will come down the line and undoubtedly the can-do attitude that we have now will through inquiries and so on turn into a why did you not do attitude and that will that will come uh, it's just a question of when really
1: and and how are you and your staff at the moment how would you describe things
0: well, December and January, you know, and this this is clear for anyone who's been watching the news or in ICU, has been the hardest two months in the pandemic, the hardest two months in my career, life, uh, and probably the hardest in the 73 years since the NHS has started, and that's not just for critical care. You know, there's no such thing as a front line, really, for COVID. It's a circle. You know, it's, it's primary care, it's medicine, it's geriatrics, it's pharmacy, it's everywhere. Uh, and I think these stresses and strains, just because ICU makes good pictures on television, uh, the, these stresses and strains are replicated completely across the board, really.
1: Thanks, Matt. Uh, and Partha, um, tell us how things are with you and your teams.
3: So I think two aspects to it. I think from a point of view of a specialty work, we have really shrunk things down as we have had to. There's only a few things that we have tried to keep maintained. One is the pregnancy clinics, because, you know, pandemic or no pandemic, you can't stop a pregnancy, so to speak. And the other one is because of the longer term impact on amputations. So people with really ischemic limbs, we're trying to keep that going as much as possible. I suppose on that one it's been noticeable to see how many high-risk people are afraid of coming to the hospital. And uh, we are genuinely worried about the longer term impacts of where that sits. Um and apart from that, um we've all been drafted onto the ward. So at the moment, um my my role is to work across the surgical and orthopedic wards because they're not surgical and orthopedic wards at the moment. They're all filled with people who have got COVID or any other illnesses, so to speak. So um, a bit of a usual NHS, uh, you, know, sp- you know, morbid humour around it all as you do ward rounds with your dermatology colleagues and your dentists and your psychiatrists. But I think it's been amazing to see how people have tried to get together to do work that's needed. So, yeah.
1: Thanks, Father. Helen, how are things in general practice? Um,
2: Where I am, it's okay. We're getting a lot of notifications of people who are sick with COVID um, or who have the infection. Um, just at the m- moment, uh, I don't have too many patients personally who are very sick with it. They're just a bit sick, but um, that's always going to be uh, a worry. Um, we're doing our best to look after them at home. Uh, we've got a, a fantastic new scheme that we've got where we, all the GP practices where I am have been delivered um, packs with SATs probes so that we can hand them out to patients um, uh, with some instructions and a kind of structured monitoring um, so that we can ring them up uh, and check how they are, just not how they feel, but also have some objective evidence and help us work out when people need to go to hospital um, and when they're safe to stay at home. So that feels like a uh, a step forward. Um, It's busy because we're trying to do our routine day-to-day work and also um, run vaccination clinics. And I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about those clinics later. Thanks, Helen.
1: Lizreen, how, how are things with you?
4: Yeah, in public health, I think obviously very positive that, you know, we're having a lot of vaccinations, but I think... We say um, again and again that the plan needs to be go beyond vaccinations. And in, in terms of after, the, the plan can't just be lockdown and vaccination at this stage. Basically, we need to go back to trying to have a comprehensive uh, strategy of suppressing infection after the lockdown is lifted, because at that time we won't have most of the population vaccinated and we don't want the virus to spread uncontrollably uh, because of the two main reasons. Because of the morbidity, even if you're, you know, young and healthy, so we've got long COVID, but also very, very importantly, because of the risk of mutations, um, if the and we've seen how, you know, the virus is capable of that, uh, and that might mean, you know, vaccine resistance. So we um, need to keep it under control after this lockdown is lifted, so that we don't have any further lockdowns.
1: Thanks, um, Nazreen. I just want to pick up on a point. Um, that you ra- you raised it before we joined the podcast was about the the, the deaths of people after the twenty eight day period. Uh, the study that's just been been posted on Med Archive um, about people who've had COVID and been in hospital going back into hospital and high risk of death. Can you just talk us through that and, and the implications?
4: Sure. So there is this a uh, recent analysis um, of of uh, uh, over forty seven thousand hospitalised. Uh, Covid patients, and they were matched to um, controls to compare them. And actually, very concerning findings was that almost um, so twenty nine percent were readmitted after discharge, and twelve percent um, died uh, following discharge. And the, and the and the and the and the medium and the period of follow up. The average period of follow up was one forty days. So within that period, twelve percent of hospitalised Covid patients died, and this includes all hospitalised patients, a minority were admitted to ICU during their admission, so most of them weren't, you know, severe enough to go to ICU. Um, so um, this is really concerning, and it really um, points out that the 28-day cutoff uh, for counting COVID deaths is not accurate at the moment, and we no- need a long, longer period of follow- follow-up if we want to um, to count deaths accurately from COVID and also it points out how serious um long COVID is, so how serious, you know, the illness it, it goes on and there are complications that arise and it doesn't end by, you know, discharge from hospital. Um, it, you know, the, the people you know, COVID were three times more likely to have a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease and liver disease, uh, twice as likely to have a diagnosis of kidney disease and one and a half times more likely to have a diagnosis of diabetes. So we've got a mountain of chronic illness accumulating that still the public messaging um, is not really talking about. It's purely talking about the acute stage of, um, you know, of the illness.
2: I'd be really interested to know whether those people who were then readmitted and died several months after their original diagnosis of COVID, whether COVID was what was eventually put on the death certificate, because obviously they wouldn't count in the 28 days. But actually, if it was to do with cardiovascular damage, which was probably related to the original COVID. Did that did that make it the death certificate? It, it, really interesting questions about what we label and whether
1: any measure other than excess death is going to capture what this pandemic's done. So all of this just hammers home um, the point about the need to suppress the virus in the longer term or or as soon as possible, rather than just relying on vaccination because we've got to prevent as many people as possible from getting it. But also, if I could just raise the issue about the multi-system nature of this disease um, and and just like to hear from um, Matt and Partha about what that means when you're managing people acutely in hospital and and how uh, we, we we hear that management has improved so much that people are not dying in the same... The way that they were in the first wave once they get to hospital. Uh, Matt, can you just talk us through a few of those um, things that you're doing now that you weren't able to do in the first wave that have made the difference to mortality in hospital in the acute phase?
0: Yeah, I think there's probably categorized three big topics and lessons that we learned from wave one. Uh, the first, of course, was around the use of steroids, and the recovery study came out and showed that dexamethasone uh, saves lives. You know, it, it prevents people from dying who are in ICU and it prevents people go into ICU who are already in the hospital wards. And that has been replicated in some other studies, including remap cap, which looked at, um, uh, which looked at hydrocortisone in that case. So this is probably a steroid effect. There's still some questions around other steroids like methylprednisolone, which are being used in some centers. And, and that's an outstanding research question. The next tranche of information we then had was about the complications that can come. And we now know that secondary bacterial infection is common, which wasn't a surprise. We now know that secondary fungal infection is common, especially with things like aspergillus. And that is a little bit more of a surprise, although that's also the case in H1N1 and in influenza, for example. And we also saw a high incidence of thromboembolic disease. And so many hospitals around the country have ramped up their thromboprophylaxis to an intermediate level. However, the ICU study looking at thromboprophylaxis and treatment dose anticoagulation has actually stopped that arm. And so therapeutic anticoagulation in these patients isn't a good idea. What we don't know is what about this enhanced thromboprophylaxis? And then finally, the next big topic, which has been topical really this this week and this month, is about further immune suppression. Uh, an ICU study, REMAP-CAP, has stopped recruitment into some of the arms of its immune suppressant study using toxiluzumab, which is an IL-6 antagonist, and that's because there was a signal of benefit in that arm. However, and it's a big however, Uh, Recovery hasn't reported its findings yet, Uh, and so at the minute, many units are still randomizing into immune modulation arms of studies, including toxiluzumab, an IL-6, and anakinra, which is an an IL-1 antagonist. So those are the three big changes, I think, really. Steroids early on, complications, including secondary bacterial fungal thromboembolic disease, and then finally, this final immune suppression story, which is still ongoing.
1: Thanks, Matt Partha. How does that play out on, on the on the general medical wards?
0: So,
3: before I say that, I'm always always in awe of Matt when he comes out with these words about all the immune system. So rolls off his tongue because I really struggle whenever I try and prescribe them. However, I can say things like dapagliflozin as well to counter Good that. Bravo! Yeah. So, um, I think. To be honest, I think the first wave, a lot of us were caught on the back foot. So I'm saying this from a general medic point of view. I have never seen anything like this uh, in my career where people go off so ill so quickly. And the the lack of correlation between what you're seeing the patient in front and the x-ray picture of the SATs and then how quickly they would go off. And I have never seen anything like that. So I think the second wave as, uh, so in, in a general war, I think the use of the dexamethasone has been a big, big plus. No question about it. And hats off to the people who have done the study. I think that's definitely saved much more lives than one would have thought. Um, but it comes with its own, you know, side of trick, bag of tricks, so to speak. We are, uh, we have picked up a fair few cases of psychosis because of the high dose dex going on. We have picked up obviously with the world of diabetes, its sort of impacts on glucose control, et cetera. But um, I think, and the, sec- and the other thing that uh, Matt mentioned was the secondary infections, which picks up. So, our support, if you say locally from our respiratory colleagues or ITU colleagues, have been absolutely instrumental on it. So, we've got a very clear way of doing it. You know where to add in the dexamines, you know where to call for support, whether it's respiratory, and they're running a 24 7 service, nights, any consultants on nights, ITU on nights. And it's been really well structured from that point of view. So a huge learning curve, I must say. Um, huge learning curve.
1: Thanks a lot, Partha. Um, are you finding that um, the junior doctors are have, have the tools they need? One of the things we're hearing very strongly is the sense that, you know, senior doctors are being pulled away in all directions. The juniors are having to manage very sick people who they, you know, really beyond their uh, current competence. How, how do you feel uh, the, the senior-junior balance is working at the moment?
3: I mean, I, I, you know, if there's, you know, we always talk about the word heroes. There's so many heroes and all that, the narrative of whether we should call them heroes and et cetera. But I, I, I think, you know, I always have a moment to say for the junior doctors, you know, giving up their training and they are, there's a lot of scared people out there. You know, asking a surgical junior or an orthopedic registrar to look after somebody who's got really bad pneumonia is a big leap of faith. And, you know, um, but I'm, I must say how they've taken to it has been quite brilliant. I think the, the surgical seniors have been incredibly supportive of their juniors, which has been good to see. And I think that's the message which I keep on saying to seniors. You know, it's not about you being there with the exact answer. Sometimes you just need to give them confidence to say, I'm around. I'll come around every day. Don't worry about it. So, from my perspective, you know, as I said at one point of time, in the podcast, you know, you're having dermatology colleagues coming around and trying to be junior doctors. I've got obstetricians come out and say I'm happy to ophthalmologists, and you know, we joke about have you found a conjunctivitis to be really excited about. But the thing is, you know, they they've really knuckled down and helped, and I have nothing but good words for them, and they have been absolutely phenomenal. Our trainee doctors across the board, without any hesitation, they've just come out and helped, and. You know, it just shows the spirit of the NHS in these sort of times and these sort of things.
1: Thanks a lot, Partha. Helen, how, how does um, patient management look pre and post hospital um, in general practice? What what do you feel you're able to do uh, that didn't um, happen in the first wave? I'm not sure
2: that so much has changed for us in general practice. Um we're getting uh, a little bit more information, which is helpful. Um, there was quite a long time when we just didn't know who had tested positive. And at least now we have a, a bit more streamlined flow of information. Um, <clears throat> in terms of their, their health, um, I think perhaps we are monitoring. Well, we actually set up a system quite early on to be phoning patients we were worried about every day, doing a lot of proactive um, contacting of Patients, because I think there is this thing that Partha mentioned, of patients really not necessarily being aware of how ill they are about this lack of subjective feeling of breathlessness for for patients. But I think we've been aware of that for quite a long time. I think the the main thing for us is there are just actually quite a lot of patients now compared to where we were in the in the first wave. That feeling of there are so many patients out there. Um, And having maybe become a little bit more relaxed because we've got so used to it, having to remind ourselves all the time about the PPE and the opening the windows and that actually if one in 50 of the residents in our city is likely to have COVID, then that means people coming into your surgery will have COVID. When we've previously tried to keep a kind of clean area and hot hubs, um, we know that's not going to be Completely
4: possible. Thank you, Helen. Yeah, I was really interested to see. I mean, it's such a challenge for GPs not knowing, uh, particularly the long-term effects of COVID. I mean, we we know. <clears throat> I've heard I've heard anecdotal stories that um, people are seeing much more um, thrombosis and PEs, you know, um, in, in people who n- not necessarily hospitalised because of COVID, you know, had what the so-called mild COVID. I was wondering what. Um, You know, what, how how did maybe put it, put it in a different way. How did the NICE um, long COVID guidance help or do they help at all in trying to inform what to do with these patients, you know, in terms of your threshold for investigations, etc. Or do you straight away refer to these long COVID clinics? They're not available now everywhere. I'm just interested to know how what your approach in primary care
2: is. I mean, it depends what we think might be going on. If it's a patient who rings up and said, "Well, I thought I was getting better and was nearly over it, but in the night I was just so much more breathless than I was yesterday," then I ring up my colleagues at the hospital and say, um, "I think this person needs a CTPA. Can I send them up to you?" Um, and and so there's that we have quite good access to. Advice and investigations, which I think is really helpful. If it's not anything as clear cut as that, as you know, something new, but just a, a not getting better. Um, we do have a, a very good clinic. In fact, there's a, there's kind of two arms of it. There's a respiratory side to it, and there's also a slightly more complex, multidisciplinary um, physiotherapy, psychological therapy um, end of of our long COVID clinic, um, but. I, I think they are they're still feeling their way because there aren't there aren't answers, nevertheless, even being referred, being recognized that there is something wrong and it's not just them failing in some way psychologically to get over it, I think is really helpful for patients to 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 i mean it's not great to be told nobody knows when you're going to get better, but at least
4: it's helpful to be told we
2: do recognize you're ill
4: yeah and i think I think the main question the recognition was such a big thing and i think it still is for long covid uh, patients because you know there was a lot of dismissing them as an it's all in your head kind of thing but i think even now that some of the symptoms are, are difficult to um um, you know to classify, so so uh, we know more and more now from survey with people, you know, with low COVID, um, and I've experienced this myself, so I can describe the symptoms. You know, the chest, you know, that kind of feeling of chest pressure or chest heaviness that you feel. It seems to be typical. A lot of people are experiencing, like like an animal sitting on your chest, um, and then people coming back with this kind of usual basic investigations as negative, and and it's not been figured out. You know what it is. Hopefully, it will. I think the patterns are emerging. Uh, but I think it's it's about what is the main question really for me is what are the right investigations and at what level? And I don't think that's been figured out yet. I think it's really important to collect
2: patient stories as well to count the symptoms, because if doctors hear a symptom that they just don't recognise, there's a real tendency to say, well, that's a bit weird. Um, and actually not even write it down because it's just a bit too weird and it doesn't fit with any pathological process where we discount it. And then when you have five patients saying, I've got this funny kind of buzzing feeling vibrating in my chest, which loads of patients have told me, clearly there's something happening. I've no idea what's happening, but we need to to write it down and investigate it. Um, and, and I wonder whether maybe social media has helped a little bit with that, that patients have been more able to compare symptoms and say, I know this sounds weird, but this has happened to me. Just
0: thinking back to the story of how chest pain from cardiovascular perspective is very different in women versus men, and that's only been recognised in the last few years. I guess one big risk here, when 70% of the hospitalised people with COVID are men, actually collecting those stories and looking at that data, there's a real risk of that pendulum being swung in that way again, Uh, and I wonder what the ways are to uh, make that you know, not reoccur. And in fact, the symptoms may again be very different. Uh, and, and we've gone down this path uh, before, sadly.
1: Collect the data in primary care. <laughs> <laughs> Nizreen, can I just get your sense of where, uh, where things are with the NICE guidance on long COVID?
4: I think the most positive things, um, thing that come out, came out, which is a big thing, was to say that really there shouldn't be discrimination based on test results, you know, because that's been a very common theme story uh, for people who got affected in the first wave and they weren't tested. Um, and, you know, to say, well, is it really, is it COVID? I mean, we, you know, it's, it's all of that kind of, that makes makes it very difficult. So there is there was a, that was positive. I think, um, one of the things is the nice guidelines defines they they call it post COVID syndrome, which I uh, I and many others you know people and long you know with long COVID have have an, have a, a bit of an issue with the name itself. But beyond just because you know it assumes a certain mechanisms and we're not there, I don't think we're there in, in terms of the knowledge yet. Uh, but also in terms of the definition, it, it's very much still dependent on what um the doctor you know mainly the GPs. Uh, what their threshold of giving that label of long COVID, because obviously given that label means access to management, referral to the clinics, access to investigation. You find with long COVID patients, there are GPs who can easily say, well, yeah, I think you've got long COVID. And therefore the doors open. And and some other GPs have a very high threshold for saying that. So I think there's definitely more room for improvement.
2: Can I just also point out that I was trying to um, document one of my patients the other day and discovered there is not a code on my computer yet for long COVID. There's lots of other COVID codes, but there isn't one for long COVID, Um, which may impede our research somewhat.
1: Hi, I'm Navjot Larder, Head of Education for the BMJ and panellist on Deep Breath In, the BMJ's podcast for GPs. In this week's episode, we're also talking about vaccines. TV and radio GP Mark Porter works at one of the first UK practices to get the vaccine and gives us his top tips on how to get 3,000 patients vaccinated in a day. We also have Andrew Pollard answering some questions from GPs. Plus HIV epidemiologist Julia Marcus discusses the lessons she's learned about the importance of getting to the right people with any intervention. That's this week's episode of Deep Breath In, available wherever you get your podcasts from. Can we talk about vaccinations um, now? Who of you have had your vaccination? Matt was the first, I think. You've had one dose.
0: Yeah, I had mine uh, in that first week, actually, on the Tuesday. Had a second appointment booked, which was uh, cancelled, and now I have a second dose planned for. I think it's uh, mid February.
1: Partha, have you? You've had yours.
0: I've had mine. I've had two. You've had I've two. Had-
1: now Helen has had three.
2: Ah, yes. I was in the um, Oxford vaccine trial um, and I had one dose of that. Um, And then I had a dilemma about whether to have the Pfizer when I was offered it. And I thought, well, probably from my patient's point of view, more vaccines better. So I had that and I indeed had a second dose of that. So I if anyone's going to be immune, it should be me at this point.
1: You're going to be a, a, a circus act at some point, Helen. We'll have your immune immunology up on the screen and have a look at that. Nizreen, have you had a vaccine?
4: No, I haven't. I haven't been offered it. Not 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 this projective. I haven't been offered. It. I'm not frontline.
1: And also, you've had COVID. I wonder if that changes things.
4: Um, yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, a lot of the doctors in the um, Um, we've got, there's a Facebook group for long COVID doctors with long COVID, uh, it's got hundreds of doctors, um, and many are, you know, taking the vaccine, you know, when offered. So, um, but obviously we don't have, um, particular research about this, but, uh, you know, that seems to be the, you know, the, the recommendation and it's been being done by, by people, even if they've not completely recovered.
1: Yeah, and I haven't had mine. I'm not frontline, sitting at home here, (laughs) (laughs) editing the journal quietly. Um, Just about the vaccine rollout then. Um, In hospitals, uh, we're getting a sense that it's going pretty well. There was a bit of a glitch. Some people weren't getting it. And in Cambridge, there was a big hoo-ha about administrators and managers getting it for some reason ahead of clinical staff, because the algorithm was set in such a way that that made it, I don't know, it was a bit of a mix up. But um how, how about with you, Matt? Uh, you, you're, pretty much all your colleagues have had the vaccine who need it, do you think?
0: Yeah, pretty much. We, we initially had a phone uh, line to call and predictably it was never available so that's moved on to an online system that's been okay you know Wales has had a bit of a tough time with public vaccine rollout this week with Mark Drakeford making some comments that weren't entirely clear I think as it turns out to be and we are lagging slightly behind England especially uh, with vaccine rollout per head of population and I think you know lo- like always there's a lot lots of reasons for that Wales is an odd country in many ways in that there's a big gap in the middle with lots of rurality uh, and that poses challenges as well um, so I think that misunderstanding about vaccines staying on shelves has been cleared up by the health minister this morning.
1: Partha, how are things down in the south? So um
3: I think there's a, there's a combination of uh, things going on. I mean, uh, the staff are getting their vaccines. Uh, there is a, a brewing controversy, not just in our trust, everywhere about the second dosing, the scheduling, uh, what happens if you can't find people for the first, first vaccine. So uh, I think there's a lot of debate going on. And I think it's fair to say the local... Trusts and CCG leaders are being asked. Uh, I suspect they're following what they've been told by the JCBI and NHS England, etc. It's a very tough place to be in. Uh, and uh, I think the recent, this, you know, it's it split opinions, hasn't it, as to whether the scheduling is the right thing to do or not. Uh, and it's all across the board. You know, FDA have come out with something. WHO have come out with something. England seems to, or UK seems to be doing what they're doing. I can also see both sides of the argument about we have to vaccinate, we've got a different strain, we've got to protect the population. I suspect the debate will really start to erupt when you go to 12 weeks, and if due to some reason they can't keep their 12 week, or they start considering, should we try another vaccine as your second one? And I think this is where the controversies will start. I mean, I think at the moment it's going really well. I mean, and I, as I've said many times, hats off to primary care and everybody else concerned for doing it. I think... You know, we do it in diabetes, our population-based chronic disease management, primary care do an awesome job at it. This is a this is a population-based intervention. Give it to primary care, it will be done, is my view of looking at it. Um, I think there's some interesting times coming ahead. You know, I wouldn't say that the UK has covered itself in glory with all its interventions over the last nine months. So this will be a crunch point. And I think there's a lot riding on the decision made by JCVI and Chris Whitty, who I've got a lot of respect and time for. He's made the call what he's made the call, but it will be a tough place to be in if you come to a place where the second dosing is being stretched further or not. And it will be an interesting debate going ahead.
1: Helen, tell us how things are in general practice, your views of the, of the rollout and the role of general practice.
2: Yeah, I mean... I think one of the points to remember is that giving vaccines to lots of people is what general practice kind of does year in, year out. We give the flu vaccination to everybody over the age of 65 and lots of um, clinically vulnerable people under the age of 65. So we're kind of – it's it's something that we do as a routine. Um, and so when we're asked to do that for a slightly more quickly – um, and organizing it slightly differently, particularly because of the fragility of the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, not a problem, we can do that. And it's really heartening to see that being done all over the place. And now we can also take the um AstraZeneca vaccine out on home visits. So I've started doing that, and that's a, a real pleasure as well. So there's a huge amount of positivity. I think where the where the cracks are just beginning to show what to do with vaccine supply and particularly where um, GP practices were expecting to get vaccine and the supply hasn't arrived, and then you see that it's actually that is being done in these mass vaccination hubs. And, And a lot of us just can't quite work out the rationale for these mass hubs because people are being invited, elderly people are being invited to visit them, sometimes travelling quite long distances, which will mean either driving themselves, but many people in their 80s don't drive. Um, or So they're going to have to share a car with somebody else or they're going to have to take public transport, both of which are infection risks, to go to somewhere unfamiliar, to meet with lots of other people. I mean, I'm sure they'll work very hard at their infection control, but one has seen pictures of quite big crowds at some of these mass vaccination hubs, um and it seems well if their local surgery could have had the vaccine why wasn't it done there um and uh when these surgeries are crying out for more supplies we're getting 300 vaccines a week you know we could easily do i don't know probably 10 times that we could deliver if we had the vaccine supply and i can completely understand if people say well You've already done your 80 pluses and we need to send the vaccine to other parts of the country where the people in that age group haven't yet had their vaccine. I think no no one would be worried about that. But actually, if it's going to a mass hub and patients are being invited there rather than being able to go to their GP, I I just don't understand the reason for that. And there's this kind of worry that having had something that was working, we're going to go Back to a centralized model, and we learn we've learned several times in this pandemic that centralized doesn't necessarily work better than local, and we could do it better if we kept it local
1: so we've got the vaccine going out with with mainly things going well the problems ahead perhaps um, the, the, the question about mass vaccination centers versus local vaccination. A big question for us must be what's the what's the plan post lockdown apart from the vaccine? And we can't I think we'd all agree we can't rely on this vaccine. It's going to take till the end of the year to have enough coverage um in the UK. Uh w- what else have we got to do um to suppress the virus? Nizrin? Um
4: yes, absolutely. It's very I think it's very concerning. Um that there is so much focus on the vaccine as the way out in the, in the very short term because we know it isn't um even if if there there is the target is met in terms of you know uh you know vaccinating the priority groups um that's still a minority of the population so if we do nothing um then you know or even if we do the minimum i mean you know like what we were doing in the summer, I guess, uh, you know, then the virus will just spread and spread, and and the and the big fear now, uh, let alone, I mean, we've been talking about morbidity and long COVID for ages, but now it's is this mutations arising, and they seem to arise in, in in places where the virus is, you know, allowed to kind of spread almost uncontrollably. So, you know, then you know, what what do you do? You know, we now have a, mu- a mutation that means. Um, the virus is more transmissible luckily there's no evidence that it's because you know it causes more severe disease but obviously if you have more infection that means pe- more people with severe disease but if we have that sort of um, mutation which um, you know can m- either cause severe disease or resistant to the vaccine and then and then and that there's a danger if you're vaccinated you kind of don't really care you know the message is that's it you're completely protected you don't need to you know, to take these measures uh, to protect yourself or protect uh, others, uh, then people might be even more prone to infection. Um, if you know, and and to disease, if the if the mutation becomes, uh, you know, allows vaccine resistance. So we need we need to do it. And and it's the same old thing. You know, it's just we. I mean, I certainly feel a broken record uh, in terms that I think others feel too. It's the same, you know, measures of you know social distancing, masks, and uh, you know ventilation, test and trace being really efficient. Um, again post-lockdown um and these these measures needs they need to be there. Uh, I'm concerned actually even um now you know obviously there are places where people are meeting even during lockdown you know if you have um to go to work or even you know in educational settings uh for some of the some of the um, um children young people you know masks are still not mandated um you know, we're sharing, you know, a room together. So <laughs> I'm really, really surprised by this. And I don't understand why. I just don't understand why, you know, you know, we know from what's happening in other countries and from the evidence that these are the measures we need to take.
1: It does seem uh, that that we just aren't still, still, still getting uh, the fine test, trace, isolate and support and particularly Isolate and support um, measures uh, just not in place in parts of the country where people, well, in large swathes of the country, people do need, feel they need to go out to work and and, and isolation is just not a a financial possibility for them.
4: There's a a penalty, I think, for many people in terms of isolation. And if you have, if you fear there'll be a penalty, a social and financial penalty, why would you get tested in the first place? You know that's just an obvious question. Unless you completely remove the barriers and actually you almost make make it, uh, you know, a, a good experience to have. You know, if you do test positive and isolate, um, then that that will always remain t- to be a problem.
1: So Nizreen, just um, you know, the mag- there are no magic bullets here. It's all marginal gains. But if I were to say the one or two things you You would like government or or you know local public health to to achieve to try to get us safely out of this lockdown and and through into full vaccination scheduling what what would you say those things were
4: well i've um it's i've always been passionate about trying to 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 introduce measures to keep schools safe and i think we really need to to be to to talk about this uh, because they will be opening um, soon and we want them to open because there's a huge damage of keeping well they're not really closed they are open but actually not open at kind of full class size um, um, so so we need to talk about how how and and we need and there are measures that are being applied in other places in the world um, and so far we can't we, we we don't really hear of you know, the, the da- any damage from these measures in terms of you know applies you know these includes masks but also the ventilation measures are really really important because you know you know closed spaces in the winter you know lots of people inside you know classes um I you know there needs to be ventilation solutions there and then obviously I think it's the t- it's the test and um, test and trace and isolate and supporting people uh, to do that um, and. And and really, really important to have clear public messages. Obviously, we've got the thing about the, the you know, now about the mass testing of, you know, with rapid uh, antigen testing, you know, like lateral flow test. Um, and I think the messaging that if, you know, needs to go with that needs to be very clear that it's a red light thing. So, if you know, it picks up positive cases, but if it's negative, it really doesn't mean you don't have it and you need to, um, the behavioral interventions need to be there. And I think I think we talk a lot about behavior and it's becoming... Uh, a blame game and a shaming game, you know, and the public, you know, you know, people just, you know, blaming and shaming each other. I think I don't, I can't think in public health of an example where this have ever worked <laughs> uh, to achieve the, you know, the, the, uh, what we want to achieve. I think it's more about structural changes, facilitating these behaviors, you know, you know, making people, uh, it making them the easy choice to make. Um And and clear messaging messaging
1: about them. Just before I ask that same question to the others, just to mention that we have got a webinar that follows on from our known unknowns, COVID known unknowns, um, looking at where the uncertainties are across the whole of the sort of COVID uh, field. Uh, And the one on on Thursday, January 28th from four to six p.m. UK time. Is about schools, uh, so I just picked that up based because you mentioned schools. there, Nizreen, um, Matt, your sense of of getting out of lockdown. What what do you think we need? What 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 else in addition to what Nizreen has said do we need to do?
0: Yeah, I think Nizreen will talk much better than I about reducing the infection. I think the thing I'm probably worried about the, the war analogy has been overused in medicine quite a lot, but in COVID, it it kind of works, and to some extent, the hard work starts when the shooting and the war has ended. You know, that's when rebuilding happens. That's when you peel back the lid and see what you have left. And I think now, bizarrely, is probably the time to be planning for that. You know, what will happen to staffing uh, in the summer, next summer, when all these things come to pass? What will happen to the infrastructure of hospitals when budgets are tight and infrastructure is already tough? Uh, How can we expand critical care capacity, not just in ICU, but on respiratory wards in EDs and other places so that this doesn't happen next winter? Um, and I think those are the questions, bizarrely, we should be asking now, because as soon as this starts to come down, those will be the problems that we'll see.
1: Thanks. Partha, what do you think needs to happen to uh, after lockdown and as we move on in the year?
3: So, so what I think should happen and what I think will happen is probably Going to be different. Um, what I think should happen is I think we should listen to public health experts properly and follow their lead, or just look at the copybook of other countries who seem to have done it better, rather than trying to do our own thing. I, I think we're ten months in now. I think there comes to a point where you go like, okay, this probably is not working. We probably should learn. I mean, at what you know, if we were doctors, right? This is one of our trainee doctors doing it. We would have turned around and said, right, we need to have a sit down and a non-coffee chat at this point. But you know. Uh, so my view is uh, listen to the public health experts this this is their job this is what they do Uh, and I think and then going forward I think i can give you a point of view from a diabetes point of view we we are worried because people have missed their checks and it's as straightforward as that that's not and that's simply because people have not been in a position to offer the basic annual checks we're very proud of our diabetes outcome because primary care have done such a fab job over the last 10 years of making the checks happening you know there's a the retinal screening program. There's so much public health involvement in the way we do diabetes care. And that's why the results are what they are. And we've lost that. There are people who haven't had any checks done for a year or if not more, and they will be, and as we play catch up, it could be two years before they have any checks. So I think with my national hats on, we're certainly looking into it. I reckon we need to bring some investment into it. Uh, but the, the question I always, is the invest, and I've always said this, money's not the... Actual golden ticket because the staff is still the same. And that's your problem. So, um, probably we'll have to look at innovative ways of doing it. Prioritization will come in play. I think we'll have to say that it's a tough place to have the conversation, but I think we are certainly heading towards it. So, um, I'm, you know, let's put it this way I'm, I'm a little bit more hopeful than what I was eight months ago. Um, uh, I have uh, bitten the bullet. I've taken some annual leave. I've booked some leave. Uh, I've actually booked a place to go to, but without paying, you know, for the time being. So I made those steps forward and I've, you know, I would love to go and see my parents in India. Right. So those are the things I'm sort of uh, keeping towards. Uh, So, yeah. Let, let's see. Let's see how it goes.
1: I, I hadn't heard the uh, the non-coffee chat. I love the idea of, <laughs> of having a non-coffee chat with the Prime Minister or with um, Matt Hancock and, and what that implies in terms of what's, what you're going to say to them. Uh, thanks, Partha. Helen, your you know your hopes or, or fears for the next yeah. months.
2: I suppose, uh, yeah, non-coffee chats uh, with some of the people in charge is definitely in order. Um, and I think, you know, one doesn't want to keep, digging up the past. But the original decision that we wanted to flatten the curve rather than eradicate the virus was just such a fundamental mistake. And what we need to do going forward is eradicate the virus, Um, which means that when we've got the levels down through vaccination, through lockdowns to something slightly more manageable than where we are now, We have to do so much better with supporting people not to spread the virus, with finding the people who have, finding their contacts, helping those people keep safe and keep the people around them safe. Um, Certainly here locally, we've got quite a big campaign to to make this a local effort because the national effort has, has not delivered Um, So I think it's going to be, I keep banging on about this, about going local with our um, testing, our tracing, our isolation and our support so that we can do as our eastern neighbours have done. If we'd looked east, if we'd learnt from what other people have done, we would have learnt that actually what you need to do is react hard and very strong to every appearance of the virus, so that it doesn 't spread again, and particularly with this risk of, of new variants, we can 't let our guy our guard down at all. we've really, really got to do it this time, um, which it felt in the summer it was a sort of oh well, this is irritating it 's just going to go away if we ignore it seemed to be the attitude for, from the center. It was never going to do that, um, and we there, I suppose my real worry is that that attitude with, well, it's not so bad now, we can all relax, it's going to happen again. We can't do that.
1: Thanks very much, everyone. Just a last question to each of you of a message uh, to your constituents, whether that be staff, government, local policy makers. Partha?
3: So I would, my, my big thing is about morale of the staff, uh, you know, there is no point in doing whatever we do without the staff. You'd, we're dead in the water. That's our most precious, precious thing to have. And my personal view is that we slightly missed an opportunity when we did the vaccine prioritization. I think saying to people, going out and saying, look, we have messed up things with the PPE, but you know what? You are our most valued resource. We protect you first. I can understand the logic as to why we went where we went. But to get in a position that you have BMA and then NHS England stepping in, and then it suddenly looks like a reactive process, and shouldn't be. It should be like right day one, this is where we start at par with the people who are at highest risk. It's the messaging which I think is important. So I think going forward, that's what I would say to everybody who are in the positions: stop, look after your staff, and do simple things which can make a big difference. It means a lot, and even if it's as small as you're, you know, a senior on the ward. And you go and buy your junior or you train your coffee or just have a nice word and be there. It doesn't matter. Every little thing adds up. And that would be my message to everybody is that tough times, yes, we are undergoing tough times as well, but we have that role where we do have that towards our staff as well. That that would be my message across.
0: Matt. I guess my message is no winter lasts forever. Spring always comes. Uh, the daffodils will be here. And hopefully, as the vaccination rolls out and the other things that Nisreen has mentioned, things will get easier and things will pass.
1: Helen.
2: I don't know I have much else to add. I guess it's just, uh, as Matt says, hang on in there. Things are going to be improve. improve. But remember, the vaccine works when lots and lots of people have had it. It doesn't necessarily, or, or unfortunately, it doesn't completely cover each individual who has it. Even if they've had two doses, there will be some people who are not um, protected by it. So it's something about collectivity and about the need to carry on looking after each other, whether or not people have had the vaccine, uh, and to carry on with our mask wearing and our opening the windows. Ms. Rain,
4: thanks. Um, quick message. Um, my message, as well, as to policy to the you know people in charge, our leaders. Uh, please, it's not too late. We've um, um, not done so well, uh, but it's not too late to correct the path. Uh, particularly, you know, now we you know trying to bring the infection down with the lockdown. My message to the media: Please stop going on about focus protection, uh, because it just confuses people. Um, It doesn't work. This is the idea of you can somehow completely just protect the vulnerable and do nothing about the virus spreading. Um, And it's just so damaging. And I want to share some uh, nice and promising news, really. Last week, we had the first parliamentary debate on long COVID, um, it, was, um, it was great. I watched it all. Um, and lots of MPs from all the different parties really kind of telling the stories of their constituents about how important to take this seriously. Um, and, the, and so it was great. And then there are three main asks, which is, you know, better reporting, you know, counting long COVID, um, research and long COVID. But also very, very importantly, you know, compensation and employment rights for people who have this. Um, so that's, so that, that's good news
1: thank you very much to all of you. Thanks to Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan, Nizreen Alwan and Partha Carr. Do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. You can send those to newsdesk at bmj.com. And do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley. Goodbye and thanks for listening.